One, check, 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 one, two, one, two, check, check, check. Looks pretty good, man. Looks pretty good. Mayor Steve Bakken is our guest for the Play Hard, Work Hard morning show, as well as an exclusive interview here with the Honorable Mayor Bakken. How are you doing today? Good, buddy. How are you doing? Not too bad. Thank you for joining us this morning. And boy, big, big news. But I know you've got your own work to do, so I appreciate you stepping aside for a quick little update on Bismarck, North Dakota, the Bakken oil field from the mayor's perspective at the state <laughs> capitol. Well, as much as you are a city representative, because you're in Bismarck, you got to keep tabs on the state because the state is the one who pays the city. And then you got to keep tabs on the Bakken because the Bakken is the one that pays the state. Exactly. <laughs> so what's going on, man? Give me an update from your perspective. Well, just uh, we're busy in the middle of a legislative session, uh, you know, following a couple bills, uh, a couple things that we're working on uh, uh, for infrastructure for the city of Bismarck. Um, one of the things that we're looking at doing is trying to get rid of special assessments in Bismarck. Uh, that's going to come up uh, next week uh, in in uh, conference. So we're going to have some discussions on that. Uh, city of Bismarck, actually, we put forward our own study, um, commissioned our own study to take a look at how we can better manage yeah. Uh, the costs of infrastructure in the city, because um, if you look around the country, there's basically it's a North Dakota thing for special assessments. Um, one of the things that I look at for having a healthy economy is you have to have a healthy housing market, which means people have to have the ability to move laterally and vertically and horizontally within a market as their needs are met uh, or their life changes, you know, kids, grandkids lack of kids, empty nesters, you need that ability to move in and out. Problem is, when you take a look at uh, some of the um, areas in Bismarck, there's houses that have $50,000 in special assessments on them. Um, it's no longer a negotiating point uh, for a housing transaction, a real estate transaction. At that point, uh, you're going to take a hit. Um, you take a look at Fargo, uh, there's houses in that community that's got $100,000 in special assessments. That's not healthy. Um, I kind of equate it to a, you know, being that a home is your biggest investment, I kind of equate it a little bit to unfunded pension funds, you know, where that's an Achilles heel for state government. Uh, for personal lifestyle, the special assessments and the, the types of numbers those can uh, approach, that's a um, that's an Achilles heel for, for most people. And at that point, you're tied to the house. You're house poor. It's it's really a problem in Fargo. And hardly anybody talks about it for the reason you just said, because I remember sitting down, this was almost 10 years ago, when the special assessments were getting 40000 50000 And those, those were out of hand 10 years ago. And I remember sitting somebody down and just doing the math on the special assessments and saying, just so you're aware, the entry level without, if somebody paid this house off cash, your $350,000 house or 200, I think it was 250,000, whatever it was, quarter million dollar house. I go, just their entry level payments without any bank or whatever is about 900 bucks a month. And so yeah. after insurance and, spe you know, specials and taxes and insurances, because generally the taxes are a little bit higher too in the nicer neighborhoods. So 
between those different things, I mean, your base is unbelievable. And the reason why I'm glad you brought this up, because there's a lot of people listening that have got headquarters in Denver and, and in Texas. You know, you, you, you've, you've hosted your share of oil and gas programs. Yes, I have. So you, you know very well that a lot of the local uh, taxes and regulations, they're, they're, they pay attention to them in Houston and Denver and in New York and Boston and other areas, too. So in North Dakota, who's made a big push to try to say, listen, We've got quality of life here, and we're going to try to make these investments here and there. Um, is there anybody that's a little bit concerned right now because of the layoffs and because of the price decreases that, you know, either from the oil and gas sector that maybe they've invested and now they're questioning if they're going to still have a job or from, you know, the builder's standpoint that, you know, North Dakota said this was going to be a 30-year boom. And, uh, boy, the last 10 years have been pretty up and down. So uh, just your reaction, you know, that sort of thing. Well, from a builder's perspective, you know, we're going gangbusters on housing developments and, and growth in Bismarck. Um, some of that's because the ball got rolling with the boom in the oil patch. Uh, it's continuing just because of the quality of life here in Bismarck. And we're a regional medical hub. Uh, we've got several um, higher ed institutions, um, and, and it's the quality of life. I mean, so we've got a lot of things going on right now in Bismarck that diversifies that a little bit, but yeah, that's a big concern of, of what's going on in the oil patch. Uh, if you take a look back four years ago, the biggest concern in the industry was uncertainty. Um, what the Obama administration was notorious for was not giving you the playbook. So when you don't know the rules, how do you operate as a business? It's guesswork, and you can't make long-term investments, and you can't make long-term decisions for that, and that was one of the reasons it kind of upended our coal industry to the extent that it has. Um, what we're looking at right now is Obama 3.0. Um, it's Some of that same uncertainty is going to start creeping in. You saw what just happened with the Keystone Pipeline. Um, I'll tell you what, a lot of American jobs went away with that. Um, my concern is, is DAPL next? Uh, if you want to crush the economy, you want to crush jobs, you want to take away people's disposable income and really stifle growth, $4 a gallon gas and $5 a gallon diesel fuel will do that. A lot of the people on the left do not understand the fact that uh, food does not come from a grocery store. Somebody has to produce that. Somebody has to get it to market. Uh, that television you want to buy at Walmart isn't produced at Walmart. That has to get shipped there. Um, it, it's a little frightening with what could be on the horizon over the next four years. Even to go a step further, the amount of you know the managed marketplace. Now, I laugh because there's so many people spouting free market that are really afraid of the free market right now because the, the the marketplace seems to be so controlled. And the renewables, wind and solar specifically, because keep in mind, nuclear is a renewable. I think hydro is a renewable. And oil and gas is a renewable. Yeah, I mean, there, there's other renewables. You know, there, so that's a little Orwellian media trick there, propaganda where uh, solar and, and wind are just renewables. But... Um, no, you know what? Those are examples of renewables. And I had yeah. this epiphany moment, oh, probably about uh, 10, 12 years ago, uh, visiting with some friends of mine from Portland, Oregon. And they were spouting off about, oh, we need to go to renewables. We have to have renewables. I'm like, well, 
what's your definition of a renewable? And they, wind and solar and, and hydro, and it's like, okay, those are all examples. Oil and gas are renewables as well. We're constantly making it. Coal, renewable. It takes a little longer, but we're constantly making it. So when you're talking about sustainable energy, um, those can stand on their own two feet. They're proven in the test of time. My biggest problem, and, and I kind of have this rule of thumb, Jason, when I'm talking energy and new development for energy, because you have to remember, without the subsidies, mandates, which are subsidies, and, and the other price support pieces, um, can it stand on its own two feet? And my rule of thumb is five years, because after five years, you're taking away R&D dollars that could, could go to a better, more viable energy platform. Uh, you're taking away innovation because there's no need for the private sector to innovate because they're subsidized. Um, take a look at a wind farm. The life expectancy of that wind tower and the replacement schedule of the blades every seven to eight years in the upper plains because they wear out, what goes into creating all of that, the energy produced does not equate to what it took to produce all that. So we're at a net loss minus the subsidies, minus the mandates, and what's propagated by subsidizing those platforms. You know, my rule of thumb is five years. I find it very interesting that there's such a disconnect because what you just very eloquently and articulately laid out is exactly what the problem is, is that even if you did away with oil and gas, well, then you can't even do your renewables because no. not only are the products made out of petroleum products, you need the petroleum products to shift it, and then you also need it to support it. You need it to not only do you need the money to subsidize the industry, you need natural gas to subsidize wind and solar when they're not able to produce. So, any which way you look at it, it is a very flimsy argument. And quite honestly, after 30 years of getting subsidies and never hitting your mark, we were told when I was a kid, and you and I are about the same age, is that we, we should have been having shingles or solar panels on our uh, shingles made out of solar panels or solar panels on our roof by now across the United States. Windmills should have been, you know, what did Byron Dorgan, the former Democratic senator of North Dakota, say for a decade? North Dakota is the Saudi Arabia of wind and never yeah. once talking about the issues that went into it and we're finding out. And, and never talked about the reclamation for it either. That's where um, I wanted to go next. That was, asset, once it's laid down, belongs to the landowner. Exactly. So now you're saddled with this piece of garbage that is on your property. Oh, and by the way, what happens in the Upper Plains? Uh, anybody who's had to pick rock every year out of a field so that they can farm their land knows exactly what the frost does. That massive concrete structure, which is four feet under the soil, it doesn't take long to work its way back up. And who's responsible for that? Now you just took a, a massive piece of land down the road out of production. So yeah, there, it, it, it goes a things, step further. a lot of things on the wind side that just... Uh, Here's, not get explained. Here's where I come from. And, and the example I like to always try to give, and I know I lose people when I do this, but 
Do you remember when uh, it, there was that push where bartenders were getting thrown in jail because someone got a DUI? Do you remember oh, that? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm so, old enough. So if, if the government can step in and say, okay, busy bartender, you're responsible for every single person's in this bars that you don't know for their well-being for the rest of the night because you serve them one drink. Now, the government comes and says, we're going to take all this money from the people and we're going to give it to these half a dozen solar people and these half a dozen wind people. And they're going to pay themselves quarter million dollars to million dollar salaries for 30 years and never hit one of their marks. But we didn't learn anything from the oil and gas industry, the coal industry, from the natural gas industry, all the other whale, blubber, whatever you want to call it, because they did not put a reclamation program from the get-go into these wind turbines. And anybody who's lived in the Midwest knows that a farmer does not replace their garage until that thing collapses. So therefore, because of insurance reasons or whatever. So those farmers or landowners who primarily sometimes live outside of the state, they're never going to, I mean, what are they going to do? They're going to wait for the state, the government to come in and help them out, just like they're now having to do with the abandoned wells in oil and gas that are a problem now because the states didn't nip it in the bud. And you know, you know no, now, now, now they have problems. Now they've they've since rectified state it. But go ahead. Sorry. And, and I like to look to this. State of North Dakota has done a wonderful job with the coal industry. You take a look at the reclamation program that the coal industry has built, and you will not find a piece of land that has gone through coal reclamation that's not better than when they found it. There's not. It doesn't exist. Every reclamation project, when they've shuttered a mine and moved on to a different location, is better than when they found it. Uh, there's better opportunities for the land. The topography's better. They've done an amazing job. There was never a reclamation discussion for wind. Um, it took quite a while in, in, for a reclamation discussion about the, the last oil boom in North Dakota. Um, but those are discussions that really need to take place and gee let's look in our own backyard because it already exists you just need to replicate that across different platforms what i don't understand is how there's not a reclamation program like for the nation at all and what i mean by that is the actual turbines themselves meaning that they don't have a way to recycle these so Nimby. the the Nimby. Iowa, the Iowa landfill said we don't want any more. Wyoming Nimby. said we can't do it. So go ahead, sorry. In NIMBY, it, it's that simple. Where's the push for all this green energy? Oh, NIMBY, Remember, not in my backyard, not in exactly. my backyard. Okay, yep, go ahead. So out of sight, out of mind. I mean, if you take a look, you remember, Jason, when that New York Times reporter did uh, the Buffalo Common story? Oh, yeah. Uh, North Dakota, yeah kick all the people out, turn it into Buffalo Commons. Mm -hmm. Uh, They've done that with wind. We're becoming a landfill for wind towers, wind blades. North Dakota's accepting wind turbines? I grew up in North Dakota being able to drive out across the state and look at the northern lights and see the beautiful skies and, and 
now you can't drive anywhere in the state without seeing blinky lights. I, I'm with you, man. South Dakota is the same way in Oklahoma. There's parts of Texas. You get down to the Permian in Texas, the same thing, man. And for me personally. I know, I, I know flares are going away. I, I Flares are going away, but blinky lights? I am a big proponent, and I believe that there is some stress relief to looking at stars. And that's not just a line to pick up women. It is a line to pick up women, but it's also a line that I do like to just go out and look at stars. In fact, you and I are both dog lovers. I used to, and I still do, try to walk my dog in the middle of the night so I can, oh, go, look, so I can go look at the stars, right? And it is a problem when you drive in these wind areas where, where uh, the blinky lights are. And I looked at a piece of property in, uh, outside of Deadwood, South Dakota, between Deadwood and Spearfish, South Dakota, in the Black Hills. And there was a wind turbine up on one of those hills. And all you could see was the shadow every second go by you from the wind turbine when it was going. And I'm like, that would give me epilepsy, just staring at that. Yeah. I mean, what an awful sunset where you just, it's a, it's a constant shadow. And then there's the humming issue that people are trying to dismiss, but except if you live next to him, uh, what's his name? Uh, Mr. Liberal out of uh, North Dakota, um, Tim Mathern. Nice guy, nice guy. Tim, you know Tim Mathern, right? Oh, yeah. And he's he's probably one of the top liberals in the state for the last twenty years, but he's his heart's in the right place, and he knows when he's beat, and he's looking for compromise normally. So I, I I've always liked Tim, and Tim was one of the ones that went out and lived or stayed a night in one of those homes next to a wind turbine, and he came back and he said, "My mind has changed now." So yeah, yeah. I mean it's you you know just go 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 live it, and you'll know it. So uh, what's going on as far as the Keystone? pipeline from what you're seeing you mentioned dapple you know that's you know, of course bismarck was ground zero for the dakota access pipeline protest right. and i know there are people licking their chops already on the environmental side for this to you know come to head oh, again I'm, and i i'm very concerned you know keystones first like i mentioned the jobs that are going to go away with that as well um and for me it's about energy security um dapple will be next um, which ironically you want to get rid of in the name of environmentalism, the safest, most efficient way to move product. Um, and then you want to stick it on a train, which takes more fuel to ship less of that product. Like I, it just, to me, it just doesn't make any sense, but no, I'm very concerned about what's next. Um, there's some pipeline projects in going through Minnesota that are, very seriously in jeopardy now. There's pipeline projects um, in North Dakota. And I, I tell you what, with the pressure that's on Dapple, I would not be surprised if that's somewhere in the crosshairs down the road. I'll tell you what concerns me is that one of the things that was holding that back protesters was the fact that they were employed. And yes. there were people that were afraid to go to a protest because they might get fired. And actually, after the insurrection and all that Trump stuff, there were people getting fired. There was news stories about bosses uh, so-and-so at the White House and fired them and all this other stuff. But now if there's a Biden uh, president and uh, people are getting paid to stay home or getting paid not to work, I think that's that, that that's a recipe for boredom and people when they feel passionate they feel like they have a just cause and I'm, I'm just i'm trying to not read the tea leaves but man they're just right out in front of my face there mayor Bob. well and you have to remember too what we dealt with here in in bismarck mandan with dapple 
was a lot of those protesters were paid. Exactly. So imagine were, now if they, the government's paying you to yeah. just to just whatever you you know now now the government's paying you to follow your bliss. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh man. So I, I am I'm worried. I'm still trying to fa- figure out how that shows up in a resume somewhere, but that's just me. Well, I did see that uh, Senator Kramer, Senator Hoven, and my guess is probably uh, Congressman Armstrong as well. But the, the one that I'm looking at is a letter from the senators, and it's urging president-elect, so now they put this out yesterday, to save the Keystone Pipeline. And uh, President, uh, I'm sorry, uh, the senator's quote is, Mr. President-elect, during the campaign you challenged America to build back better by investing in new infrastructure and energy technologies, creating high-paying blue-collar jobs and preparing for the energy mix of the future. With these and other commitments, Keystone XL meets that important test. We have to come together to find a way forward to keep people working while also creating a new standard for American energy infrastructure. You know, that's interesting because it's, it's a very, let's meet halfway, but at the same time, um, they're also trying to say that, you know, we're moving towards a new generation of, of infrastructure as well. It's just a, it's a different comment because we just had four years of uh, my way or the highway, if that makes sense. Yeah, and, and tell you what, the you know if you, if you go take a look at some of the comments by the governor of Montana as well, um, you know, echoes that same discussion point. Um, these are very high-paying jobs um, needed for our infrastructure, needed for our security, frankly. That, that's the biggest part. Nobody ever discusses the energy security part. Senator Kramer and I used to discuss on the radio all the time uh, our energy security, what the Bakken was doing for energy security in this country. And that's all at jeopardy now. Without a doubt, and that's a great point. In fact, I've, I reached out to uh, five different pipeline associations just to talk about the critical infrastructure and the safety. You know, you mentioned the, the, the going to the rail um, the trucks it's back to the rail, which was old technology. and trucks and trucks and trucks. So what you're doing is you're actually creating more cost and more, uh, damage to the roads. And you're also creating a new problem for the egg industry. Cause let's not forget that, you know, when we did this before the egg industry got really pissed off because, you know, Warren Buffett and, and them down at uh, BNSF was putting the putting the pipelines number one because they just invested a couple billion dollars in new cars and new tracks. Do you know what I mean by that? I'm not trying to pick winners yeah. and losers here. I'm just trying to do a basic five thousand foot overview of of kind of what happened. And you know, so you run in a lot of different problems to basically satisfy, which I, I call social shaming. Is that I true? I'd, I'd be very curious about your your opinion on this because it's no one's talking about it but us what i truly believe that the oil and gas industry is facing is a new challenge it's it's a they're they're attacking it the old ways through government regulations so they got government affairs offices and and departments this and that and so they they think still meeting with the politicians is going to matter not anymore the politicians are now being socially shamed so 
you have like a total social governance thing that you got to control now. So I think actually the regulation is called a social regulation. It's whatever Greta Thunberg's doing and that type of stuff. And <laughs> does that make sense to you at all? That I mean, oh, it does. Yeah. Absolutely. But, you know, it, it, to simplify things, you know, what are the two most important things um, for basic needs? Energy security, food security. And the two are very tied together and most people don't equate that you ask a farmer or a rancher what their fuel costs are what their energy consumption costs are for every head of beef or pig or bushel of grain that they bring to market is those inputs are sizable and so they're very tied together and when you don't have food security and you don't have energy security, you're at the whim of somebody else. And that's not a position we need to be in in this country. I've thought for a while that the the U.S., I don't know who it is, but they need to step up. Somebody does because the pipelines are actually considered critical infrastructure. They and, are. And so they need to be protected. And you know, they, they need to be protected in the PR realm is where I, I mean, I'm not talking about armed soldiers and that sort of thing. That's that, that that'll take care of itself on its own. They've been protecting their assets since the railroad days. OK, so they know how to do that better than you and I can ever come up with. But the social side of things, the social regulation side of things, I do think, though, that needs to be attacked a little bit different. I well, think and if you think about it, go back to, you know, Back to World War II and where PSYOPs became a big part of the battlefield. Um, Huge. It, it still is now in the energy sector, except it's not PSYOPs as much as it's social ops. You, you have to be able to battle on that front. And what I'm trying to, the, the example I try to give people to just to give them an idea of what we're dealing with here is that, I, you know, for five, six, seven years, I've been saying, listen, there's, there's an ongoing movement where leaders don't care about facts. They just don't care. And the climate at the end of the day is science, okay? It's, it's, it, it, the earth doesn't care about policies. They don't care about attorneys. The earth's going to do what, what it does, and so when I take a look at these, these Paris Accords and these climate summits, and the big, huge one last year, the year before, it was a pre-COVID one, Greta Thunberg got all the exposure. She was, she was like, that's all that came out of there in the news. And all I could think of is that, okay, you're the keynote speaker. You, you, you're, you went to school for 40 years for climate science, and you just got usurped by some 16-year-old mascot for climate change? <laughs> Are you kidding me? So when I saw that, I went, the oil and gas industry has no idea what they're up against because if a 16-year-old girl without a high school education is now the spokesperson for directing trillions of dollars, not only trillions of dollars, but lifestyle changes. The United States went through, what, the Manhattan Project with the A-bomb, we went to the moon and we built the Hoover Dam. Those are big, major projects we've done in U.S. history. Not one of them said we have to change our way of life. They were just projects that had end goals. This one's totally different. This one says you got to have a bunch of machines that spy on you in your house, and you got to have a bunch of, 
you know, electric cars and, and you got to follow this set of rules that doesn't make any sense here and that sort of thing. It's, it's a totally different uh, pressure, I guess, that, you know, we've never seen it before on this planet because it is a global pressure, Steve. Mayor, excuse me, Mayor Bakken. <laughs> you know, and, and you won't know me long enough. Um, you know, the you're right. And one of the things I think that uh, we don't factor in is that global perspective with global tactics. We are a little stuck in old school tactics and a little closer to home where we're not very nimble when it comes to, for lack of a better term, just cause and effect. You know, what are the ancillary causes? What, what are the unintended consequences of every action? There's a reaction. What are those? And, and as an industry, planning out those six, seven, eight, nine steps down the road, which are five, 10, 15, 20 years from now, it's difficult. It's, it's difficult at best. And there's not too many visionaries within the industry that have that kind of foresight or the gumption to be able to say, nope, this is the direction we need to go, not what's making us the current course. Um, Harold Ham's one of those visionaries. Um, Harold's one of the guys that sees beyond uh, the line of sight. Um, he was one of those guys. Um, but they're few and far between. And, and having that ability to be able to look at the marketplace and the global marketplace and be able to see out of that sight line, that's, that's a rare gift. So I want you to take just a second here, and by the way, Mayor Steve Bakken's our guest, way through overtime. I asked him for five to ten minutes to talk about the the Keystone Pipeline and uh, just some of the DAPL uh, um, memories, I guess, as we kind of prepare for what the next four years are going to bring here. But uh, what one of the things I did want to ask you about was Canada and even Mexico, because we've been kind of a proponent on the crude life that, you know, the reality in our mind is that the energy security should be by country or continent within land masses. That continent, continent makes all the sense. Right. The so that, and not only from a, a um, just sheer hydrocarbon, you know, path of least resistance from a cost uh, standpoint. Just from your neighbors, you should actually be having very good relations with your neighbors. You shouldn't be at well, war think, with them. So think of think of it from a diversity perspective. Um, you know, we as the United States bring a lot of things to the table. We bring a lot more to the table when we join with Canada and we join with Mexico. When you're looking at resources, so from a diversity perspective and the ability to be nimble within a marketplace in in emerging energy sectors, you know, that includes an all of the above energy policy, we need our neighbors. In Canada, they actually are very reliant on this pipeline because of the oil sands. Oh, absolutely. And this, this pro, I, I don't know what this does to Canada. I'm going to have a gentleman on, Terry Edom. He, he owns a, 
he's an author and a, he writes for public, uh, I'm sorry, the BOE report and, and he's, you know, industry. I'm going to talk with him on um, Friday. Well, and, and, and I know one of the first uh, meetings that now President Biden had lined up is with uh, Premier Trudeau in Canada. So, you know, what are those discussions going to be about? Um, to what extent are they going to discuss uh, Keystone? Um, so here's a letter from uh, Senator Kramer, Senator Hoven, Senator Dane, Senator Brasso, and Senator Lumens, Cynthia Lumens. And what they're highlighting here, you know, you mentioned the jobs. So they're saying, let's see, 1,500 workers. This project is projected to provide approximately 11,000 jobs in 2021. These are real high-paying jobs that are approximately $800 million in wages. And I'm trying to look at a few more things here. There's a, they have that. And, um, okay, here we go. In 2019, the U.S. imported over 982 million barrels of heavy crude oil from Canada, which accounts for 64% of all he- uh, heavy oil imports into the country. So that's 64% is significant. That's a significant number. That's almost mm-hmm. supermajority in politics. You're 1% away from supermajority. So um, I imagine that uh, Canada is going to be very curious to know how, you know, 64% of that oil is going to be transported, I would imagine, unless they got a bunch of refineries they're building, but they can't do that in Canada. No. (laughs) And the political landscape in Canada wouldn't allow for that. No. And I was just reading where Canada is considered the leader in energy development right now, according to all the different social scores and environmental scores and governance scores and that sort of thing. Um, they consider Canada to be the leader in the world right now. Um, which, you know what, and there's another reason why. We can learn from our neighbors on that sort of thing, and they're perfect. Well, and, and, and if you take a look at the policies out of, uh, out of Ottawa, though, and what Premier Trudeau has propagated with the policies, another great example of NIMBY. Um, not in Canada... Let's ship that to the United States. Let's get it out of our backyard. Um, their energy policies, from a from a national perspective, while yes, you're correct in that they're a world leader in emerging technology. Um, things that it takes to propagate those emerging technologies, they really don't have a friendly take on. So it's a real interesting paradigm when you take a look from top to bottom, from east to west, what the energy perspective in Canada looks like. I mean, it's an here's a, here's it's, fra- a, it's fraught with minefields. Well, it's you mentioned uncertainty earlier. I mean, you you go into conversations now with leaders, and and you're uncertain that they're even going to connect with you or understand what you're talking about. Because, like I mentioned, there's a lot of people not interested in facts. They don't want, don't, let's not let facts get in the way of the truth here. And, you know, I'm looking or at accurate, this. Or accurate science. I'm looking at this this letter, and listen to this, uh, Mayor Bach, and this is a really important example, I think, of what we're talking about, because th- these senators lay out, and this is a great point, okay. This again demonstrates, and this is, a, by the way, okay, since 2015, U.S. imports of Canadian crude oil 
by rail have increased over 190%. This again demonstrates how the Keystone XL pipeline can reduce emissions caused by the transportation of crude into the U.S. and promotes safer delivery. In short, it is more beneficial for the environment and for public safety to have the Keystone pipeline built rather than built than be canceled. So they actually brought up three good points there. Number one is there's a lot of evidence and facts that say the pipeline is safer and it's more economical and it's better for the environment. Okay, they're ignoring that. Number two, okay, (laughs) we've built the thing and now you want us to cancel it? That's just ridiculous, number two. So, I mean, no matter how you slice and dice this, it's like there's such a disconnect, Steve, we should we, we got to figure out how to connect with these people again. I, I don't know what the answer is, so I'm asking leaders, how do we connect with the, the uh, climate activists and the people that can, you know, get their enablement from a Facebook page? No, and, and I tell people this all the time. Get off of social media. Use social media for posting pictures of your food. <laughs> you know, back to what it was before, because the problem with it is... And, and, if you remember back, I, mean, I remember my grandfather, if it was in the newspaper, it was gospel. We all know that was false. And now it is, if I read it on Twitter, if I read it on social media, Facebook, Instagram, whatever the platform, it's gospel. And, and that's not the case. I, it doesn't really matter which side of an issue you're on. They're both wrong. People need to get back to using their own brain. Do your own diligence. Pick up the phone. Call somebody who knows. Call your local elected official if you have a question. Don't assume things just because they were on social media. And we're losing that ability as a society to think for ourselves. So what's next for Bismarck? What do you guys got planned? I'm kind of looking at the time here. We should probably wrap up and let you get on with your day. I know you got a lot of uh, covid uh, you know, meetings and Zooms and everything else. But at the same time, you know, you, you, you are a person that sees energy for what it is, which is the economy. <laughs> at the end of the day, energy is economy. So I It's mean, a big piece of it, yes. Well, it just it keeps everything moving. It, no matter what sector you work in, you still need your light switch on, you know? Well, and like I said, you know, if you want to kill an economy, um, the quickest way to do it is $4 a gallon gas and $5 a gallon diesel fuel you're going to crush the economy because you're going to take every bit of disposable income out of the pockets of middle-class America. Um, that doesn't function. That, it, it, there's no workaround for that. Um, but if you go back to take a look at what, under the Obama administration with Joe Biden as vice president, that was the case. Um, that doesn't work. It doesn't work for our oil plays. And it wasn't because oil was $125 a barrel that those prices were so high. It was the lack of certainty. It was was the uncertainty in the markets because the energy policy was never given the rules. You didn't have the playbook. You didn't know how to operate in a system that was vague. Um, You bring up a good point. We brought this up before too, um, which is that the export ban was lifted under Obama so even Obama, who was getting a lot of pressure from the climate activists and, and Dapple and everything like that, saw that, and I do believe he is quoted saying that he believed it was in the America's best interest 
geopolitically, you know, globally, geopolitically, because of what Russia and Saudi Arabia were kind of rumbling with some of their shenanigans and doing everything along those lines. To me, that's the one silver lining that I see that Biden was part of that administration that did lift the export ban. And that was a very instrumental piece to what we currently are, are doing. Um, yeah, but Jason, go you, you got to remember, though, that why that's while that sounded good, what did it really mean? Okay, so the export ban was lifted, so we could export. And we did export and, and currently are exporting Bakken crude, our light sweet crude, to other parts of the world. The problem is, at what rate? Okay, so we can export, but all of the facilities are for importing, not exporting. And where's the permitting for new tanks for export facilities, new facilities to handle light, sweet crude to export rather than import. When you have a tanker that you have to wait for rail cars to show up to fill the fuel barges to take out to the tanker to fuel it, what are you exporting? At what rate? And that's the flaw in the system. So Obama can say, yeah, we've lifted the ban on that, but you didn't allow for any of the infrastructure we built to be able to efficiently export. See, this is why it's important to have people like you on, because, you know, there's so much detail and minutia these days with things that happen in the media. You know, they don't dissect anything. No. So, it, so it sounded good. Yeah. Like a big, warm, fuzzy. But what did it really accomplish? Not much. It was kind of, yeah, I mean, that's interesting. Um, there, I still look at it as it did overall help the industry more than it hurt the industry. Whether From that's a PR perspective, it was phenomenal. Yeah, but you know, but the truth of the matter is, whether the long term of that's going to help the country or not is, we we don't know yet. We don't know yet. I mean, I had Senator Kramer on a few weeks ago because. I've been seeing a trend happen of consolidation and centralization to where I've been saying now for four years that if I were to bet, I would bet that a half a dozen companies will control 80 to 90 percent of the global oil supply in about five to 10 years. Well, then Senator Kramer Kramer said it'll be four companies in five to 10 years. And I went, okay, now I got a U.S. senator saying four companies. I'm not the crazy talk show guy saying six companies. So I, I, and that's why we're, we're speaking up here at The Crude Life and talking about a little bit of uncomfortable topics that sometimes is, is pressing the industry the wrong way. But we have to have these conversations or the same thing's going to happen that's been happening. Everybody's going to react, 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 and then the climate activists are going to continue to get their Teslas on the road and all the, you know, all, all the other stuff will go away. It'll, it'll be NIMBY. Pretty soon we'll just have uh, oil being pumped out in the ocean, and that, that'll be enough to make the wind turbines and everything else. And um, that's, that's where I see this going, is that they'll have the oil and gas industry, like you mentioned, NIMBY. If they can get it out of people's sight. Up in uh, British Columbia, you know what they do in British Columbia? Hmm. So coal is like a dirty word in Canada. Like you can't even burn a coal, right? But you can export it, especially if you're in British Columbia, less than 100 miles from the port. And so that way nobody knows about it and nobody can track it and everything like that. And so, oh, yeah, they still mine coal up in British Columbia, Canada. And if that ever, you know, 
got into the the wrong sort of PR, they'd probably have to end that too. So yeah, but most of that's going to China. So. That's that's all of it's going to China. Yeah, all of it is. But you're still mining it. You know, you're still mining it, and it's still being burned. So for a government to say that we can't burn it, but we'll let the neighbor burn it, well, that doesn't make any sense. You know, and so anyway. Well, but, and that's the whole problem with going back into the Paris Climate Accords, mm-hmm. which um, that it, that's it been signed now. India, China. It doesn't address the actual offenders when we've got 100% clean coal technology, but we're not allowed to use it in this country. Somebody doesn't see that's horribly wrong because there's an agenda that's there in place of how do you improve something? How do you make it better? Oh, no, no, no. We want to skip that step. We just want to get rid of it. That's the problem with environmentalists. They, they don't want, they're not concerned about cleaning things up and improving things for the betterment of all. It's their way or the highway. We and yeah, we no longer use the word environmentalist. We say climate activists because I adopted a highway back in 2004 and I've been cleaning it ever since. And nobody's calling me an environmentalist, but I tell you what, I do. You know me, so man. I, so, I, so, my, so my question is was that usurping global cooling or global warming? Because I, I forget which one it is at the moment. Well, they switch it. You know, that's why that, 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 that's <laughs> why it's convenient. That's why climate change was so genius because it, it covers it covers their ass on both sides. That's called weather, but yeah. Well, and that's where I have a real problem because at the end of the day, at the end of the day, the bottom line is what we're talking about is the future, and we have not had one climate model that has been able to tell us the climate in one year, 10 years, or five years. So now you're supposed to tell me what it is in 20 years. I'm going to go down to that fortune teller tarot card reader down the street, and her science is going to be as accurate as yours because we're talking about the future. We're talking about the future here. So it just boggles my mind that there's so many elected leaders that do believe that they know the future when... They can't even get the next day right, let alone 20 years from now. So anyway, well, final thoughts, man. Just what what do you think? We kind of talked about some heavy stuff and kind of did some bitching and moaning and complaining, but we also tried to offer a few solutions. So we better end on a little bit of a summary and positive note. So what do you think, uh, you know, people should be doing, thinking, and um, just, you know, try try to get that mindset going the right way, man? You said it the right you, you just said it yourself, Jason. Thinking. Use your own brain. Do your own diligence. Do your own homework. Just because you read it on social media or somebody told you that they read it on social media doesn't make it factual. doesn't matter what side of an issue you're on. Do your own diligence. Use your own brain. Think for yourself. Um, first and foremost, that, that that's the first thing I want to say. Um, second off, you know, for... We're in a good position here in Bismarck. I mean, we're on the edge of the oil patch. We're um, the state capital. We're, um, you know, we've got our fingers into a lot of things. And a lot of things across the state of North Dakota, being that we're at the heart of those issues, um, affects us. We're also very diversified here in Bismarck, which puts us in a really good position uh, to capitalize on an amazing asset that we have in in the Missouri River, Um We've got a hydro facility on to the north of us and to the south of us, and that never gets talked about in in the landscape of 
of energy production uh, in North Dakota for some reason. Um, we do have an all-of-the-above energy perspective. Um, so do you have a lot of positives here in North Dakota and in, in, in Bismarck as well? Um, that being said, uh, we've got some concerns with what this now current administration may bring on the horizon. 